This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Saturday, April 18th, 1970. The Garda Special Branch are out at Dublin Airport, waiting on the flight carrying the consignment of weapons to come in from Vienna. Captain James Kelly, John Kelly and Albert Likes are in Vienna. They've been there all weekend, meeting with the arms dealer Otto Schluter, trying to organise submachine guns, pistols and ammunition to be flown to Dublin. It's been six months of trying, and this is the fifth attempt to get black market guns into the country. Where are they going to make it this time? The man in charge of those special branch men waiting at the airport is at home on the other side of the city, Peter Berry. His phone is ringing. On the other end of the line is the Irish Minister for Finance, Charles Hohey. He has arranged that customs will clear the consignment through, but he's just found out that the Gardaí intend to seize the weapons anyway. And Charles Hohey has rung Peter Berry on foot of this news. Hawhey had phoned Peter Berry, the Secretary of the Department of Justice. The story of that phone call is taken up for us now by historian Michael Heaney, who you heard there, Irish Times journalist Harry McGee, and the author, David Burke. Hawhey asked, well, what's going on and why are the weapons being, why is the consignment being stopped? He didn't refer to them as weapons. And Peter Berry, who was very opposed to any arms coming in or anything that would assist the IRA in whatever guise the IRA would be, said that that wasn't possible and it wasn't going to happen. And how he has this idea that pops up into his head and he says to Barry, according to Barry, would the arms be allowed in if there was a guarantee that they would go straight to Northern Ireland? And Barry said no. And then Charlie Hawhey asked him what was going to happen to the consignment and he said, we're going to grab it. And Charlie Hawhey said, I'd better call it off. And he used three words, or he claimed that he used three words, whatever it is. Whatever it is, those three little words would be very important. Because they're part of two impressions to take away from that phone call between Hawhey and Barry. And they are that... Peter Barry claimed Charles Hawhey asked if the consignment could go straight through to the north and Charles Hawhey claimed he didn't know what was in the consignment. After he hung up from Peter Berry, Charles Hawhey got a message through to Captain Kelly in Vienna, and the shipment was cancelled. And the guns didn't make it. Again. Which, according to retired detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien, was a mistake. What you would have done if you were really serious about catching the people red-handed was you'd have let it come in, you'd let it be collected. You'd let it move down to Swords or Balbriggan or wherever we're going, and you'd have pounced. Now you've got the guns, you've got the people, you might be at the lower end of the food chain, which you have got enough to have a criminal investigation. And that failed attempt to bring arms in was to be the last attempt. But does that mean it was the end of the story? Well, no, because the whole thing was about to be blown wide open.
You're listening to Gunplot, and this is episode seven. I'm Nicolene Greer, and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the RTE Documentary and One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen the arms crisis of 1970. And remember, you can catch Gunplot, the TV documentary on the RTE player. The day after Captain Kelly, John Kelly and Albert Likes arrived back from Vienna was Budget Day in Ireland. That's normally when the Minister for Finance delivers the financial forecast for the year ahead. But not in 1970. Just to add to the drama of events, Minister for Finance Charles Hawhey was not available. If you look at photographs from the arms trial, you'll see that he has his arm in a black sling. Just a couple of days after his phone call to Peter Berry, Charles Hawhey ended up in hospital. All sorts of rumours went about, saying that he had been beaten up. On the morning of Wednesday the 22nd of April, Mr Charles A. Hayes was seen to fall in his home at Kinsale County Dublin. Perhaps because of this, Charles Hawhey's solicitor Pat O'Connor invited the press out to the stable yard of Hawhey's mansion in Dublin to explain to them that he had been thrown from a horse and had been seriously injured. A broken right collarbone and a fracture of the tip of one of the bones in his back. Tom McCochran, RT reporter, was one of those there. While Mr Hawhey is making... He explained to us about this drain pipe. I think recall, I recall him falling on him and uh, him falling off his horse. And while that wasn't really related to the events that were to follow as far as we can make out, it, it was an unusual event. He couldn't deliver his budget. Uh, Jack Lynch, uh, the Taoiseach, delivered the, the budget speech, which uh, Charlie was supposed to deliver. By the residual effects of his injury, especially post-concussion. And this seemed to be the beginning of an era of very turbulent events. The accident, or whatever it occurred, fed into the whole rumour mill. I came away wondering what had really happened. And as the arms crisis developed, I began to wonder, had he been maybe beaten up by members of the IRA because the guns promised hadn't been delivered? It shall be several weeks before Mr Hardy be able to resume his normal activity. Those several weeks were to be pretty turbulent, as Tom Cochran says. Because the day after Minister Charles Hawhey fell from his horse, his partner in the project, Minister Neil Blaney, called an emergency meeting in his office. This meeting was to be a turning point in the story of the arms crisis, especially for Captain Kelly, who was about to realise that things were not as he had thought. The reason for the meeting was that Neil Blaney had heard disturbing news that the Gardaí were making inquiries about the arms importation plan. He invited Captain Kelly to the meeting, and he asked Colonel Heffern to come along too. This was odd, because Colonel Heffern had reached the age of retirement a few weeks previously, and had by then left the army. The last person Minister Neil Blaney invited to the meeting was Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons. Jim Gibbons' son, Martin. And when my father went to Blaney's office, who was sitting in the office? Only Kelly and the retired Colonel Heffern. Now, what on earth would a retired intelligence officer be doing in the Minister for Agriculture's office? He really shouldn't have been involved at that stage. And this is how Colonel Heffern remembered the meeting, according to a statement he gave to Gardaí. It's being read by his son, Colm. On April 23rd, 
1970, Captain Kelly rang me and told me that Mr. Blaney would like to see me in his office around 3 p.m. Well, if you, even if you'd retired and the Minister of Government asked you to come in, you'd say, well, you're not going to refuse. I went with Captain Kelly to Mr. Blaney's office in the Department of Agriculture. After a while, Mr. Gibbons came down after Mr. Blaney rang for him. Mr. Blaney spoke about the fact that some of the revenue commissioners and civil servants were being questioned by the special branch and they wondered on whose authority that this was being done, as Mr. Hawley, who was Minister for Finance, was seriously ill. <coughs> Mr. Blaney did not, as far as I can recollect, mention anything about the arms deal being off, but it was understood by all present that it was off. Mr. Gibbons contributed very little to the conversation, but agreed that Mr. Hawhey should be made aware of developments if his doctor permitted this. The main theme of the discussion was why... The, the main thing Captain Kelly remembered from the meeting, though, was a remark made to him by his own minister, Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. It was not until this meeting took place that it began to dawn on me that Mr. Gibbons was, all I can say is changing colour or backing out because it was then he made this very significant remark to me. You are on the hot seat. And this immediately annoyed me very much. And I said something to the effect, what are you talking about or what do you mean? I'm on no hot seat. And this is when he used this term, brazen bastard. And at that stage, for the first time, it dawned on me that Mr. Gibbons was playing some game. Whatever the games being played in the meeting were, Captain Kelly was most at risk. His activities were the most traceable. He had withdrawn cash, been to Europe to source guns, made arrangements for them to be imported through the docks and then the airport. He hadn't concealed his behaviour. Michael Heaney, historian. Blaney worked closely with Captain Kelly. I don't know if he ever levelled with them. Blaney never seems to have told Jim Kelly how exposed he was, how he could be sold down the river by the government if this went wrong. And it looked like Captain Kelly was very exposed because by early April, his boss, Colonel Heffron, was gone. He'd reached retirement age and left the army. His replacement, Colonel Delaney, was horrified when he found out what Colonel Heffron and Captain Kelly were doing and he went and reported to the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. This is Jim Gibbons' son, Martin. Colonel Delaney met my father and he told my father that these guys are running rings around you. But here's the very strange thing. Colonel Delaney had had a two-month-long handover from Colonel Heffron and in all that time, Colonel Heffron never told the new man what Captain Kelly was working on. Colonel Heffron's son, Colm, says his father didn't see it as his place to inform the incoming Director of Intelligence about what was, after all, a secret operation. In my father's view, it was, and this followed the line of command, it was up to Mr Gibbons to tell Colonel Delaney what had been going on. So it was very embarrassing for my father to sit in front of Mr Gibbons uh, and saying, you know, uh, things are going well and, something, and, him, and him saying nothing. And why did Jim Gibbons not say anything? Well, he always claimed, and you can hear him here in a radio interview in 1980, he always claimed that he knew nothing about guns. I did give the Taoiseach copies of Army Intelligence reports. And in these reports, there was no suggestion of importation of arms. 
So because the new director of intelligence said that the minister was having rings run around him. My father asked him to prepare a, a report about the activities of what was going on at the time. And Colonel Delaney did that and came back within, I think, maybe three days with a full account of what was going on. And then all the events of March and April started becoming clear. As a result of what he had found out, Colonel Delaney now wanted Captain Kelly out of Army Intelligence, all of which added to the pressure on Captain Kelly. He now had to make a decision. He sat up all night with his wife Sheila discussing their options, and they eventually decided that he would have to apply to leave the Army. That's an extraordinary decision to take. This is Tom Clonan, security specialist and former Irish Army officer. Because as an Army officer... You invest so much of your personality, it becomes a part of your identity. The army is an extension of your family. So this is a very, very difficult decision to take. And he would have been aware that when you fell foul of the organisation, for whatever reason, that you would be the subject of very, very hostile scrutiny. If I were in his shoes, I would not like to have been subject to military law or a court-martial. Would you not have your own lawyers? Would it not? Are the rules of the courts not the same as civil courts? You would be better off on the outside, better able to represent yourself and critically to speak to the media and to speak freely about what your experience had been. Because there are literally dozens of provisions under military law which prohibit what they called unauthorised communications with media, with journalists. So he would have been at a disadvantage had he remained within the structures of an organisation that now began to see him in a hostile light. So, Captain Kelly got ready to leave the Irish Army. At the same time, Peter Berry was working hard to have Hahi and Blaney stopped. Peter Berry was in a panic. Author David Burke. Because he, at this stage now, had lost trust in the government. Peter Berry, as you know, was Secretary of the Department of Justice, and he was bringing reports of alleged gun-running plans to his own minister, but he felt his minister wasn't doing enough. So Peter Berry took the remarkable step of going outside the government altogether and contacting the President of Ireland. The President in Ireland has no direct political power, but the President at this time was an old revolutionary, had been Taoiseach and had founded the political party that was now in government. His name was Eamon de Valera. De Valera's advice, in effect, boils down to this. If you don't trust his minister, you can go directly to Jack Lynch. So even though he didn't quite trust Jack Lynch, he was now going to skip his minister and go. Jack Lynch, the leader of the Irish government, is not easy to get a meeting with. But finally, he agreed to meet the Secretary of the Department of Justice, Peter Berry. He tells Jack Lynch about this. But in Lynch's mind, he must have now had this dread and fear that if this information comes out, it's going to kick over a hornet's nest in the north. And there could be all types of intercommunal rioting and a diplomatic rumpus that would erupt between Ireland and Britain because the Irish government are being seen to bring in weapons which might ultimately be supplied to citizens in the United Kingdom. After his meeting with Peter Berry, Jack Lynch decides to act. On the 29th of April, Lynch spoke to Blaney. Historian Stephen Kelly. About the allegations of attempts to import arms and guns and ammunition. Blaney denied this. On the same day, Lynch travels to the Maher Hospital to speak to Charlie Hoy 
and high denies any knowledge. Peter Burry had told Jack Lynch that Hahi and Blaney were involved in a plan to import illegal arms. But Hahi and Blaney had told Jack Lynch that they weren't, and that was that. However, that wasn't that. Over in the centre of Dublin, in the newsroom of one of Ireland's biggest Sunday newspapers, the Sunday Independent, a political correspondent was about to have the scoop of the century land on his desk. Ned Murphy was the name of that journalist. He was a tough old guy, I remember him well. This is journalist Sean Boyne. And um, What do you remember about him? Well, he kept a gun in his desk in the Irish Independent. In the newspaper? In the newspaper office. Now, this may have been a relic from the Civil War, but there was a story told about it that two copy boys found the gun in his desk one day and they went down to the docks and they fired off the gun for a bit of crack. And then they came back and they left the gun back, but they left it in the wrong desk. And somebody discovered a recently fired gun in his desk and all hell broke loose and the guards came in and all that. Imagine the excitement Ned Murphy must have felt when someone tipped him off to a story so momentous. He knew this article was going to make big news and the tip-off came in the form of a note. A plot to bring in arms from Germany worth £80,000 has been discovered. Yes, that note that we've been talking about all along. Ned Murphy was about to write an article about explosive allegations that government ministers were running guns into the country. But the Sunday Independent wouldn't use the story. This is journalist Frank Kilfeather. Even though it was the greatest scoop of all time, either then or now, but the editor of the Sunday Independent decided that it was so explosive that he wouldn't use it because it might destabilise the government and he didn't want to do that. So poor Ned never had the greatest scoop of all times published and we sympathised with him. So that was Ned Murphy who had to sit on the scoop of the century. But this note and its allegations had been delivered to somebody else, the leader of the opposition, Liam Cosgrave. And he hadn't gone public with it yet. But the dominoes were about to start falling. The 1st of May 1970 was Captain Kelly's first day of retirement from the army. He was at home and had just had his breakfast when there was a knock on the door. There was a tall man at the door, a Garda inspector named Ducey, and he had a warrant for Captain Kelly's arrest. He was arrested by the special branch in the hallway of our house. This is Captain Kelly's son, Peter. Last year, he and his brothers and sisters wrote and recorded their memories on the 50th anniversary of the arms crisis. I remember my mother, Sheila, holding her hands to her mouth, almost silent, fear in her eyes. I knew something was wrong. My father, having got his coat, walked out ahead of his captor. Apparently, he drove his own car, but that is not my memory. I just remember him walking away. Memory is a strange beast and for most of my life I was convinced my father had been arrested on my fifth birthday. Captain Kelly's son, Justin. In my mind I can still see the dining room of the house on Wainsford Road in Terra The green velour curtains closed for some reason. The trappings of celebration on the circular mahogany table. 
a bowl of crisps, cocktail sausages and rice crispy buns, a subdued celebration in retrospect. I realise now that he had, in fact, been arrested a few days earlier. Lucy, our cat, had her first kitten that same day. And Captain Kelly's daughter, Jackie. She gave birth upstairs and pushed and carried the kitten down the stairs as we looked on, delighted and scared for this little ball of fluff. My father resigned from the army and was arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act and brought to the Bridewell. Captain Kelly was allowed to drive his own car, his little Renault 4, and on the way to the Bridewell jail, he and the inspector made small talk about the car. The Gardaí then told him to make a statement, asking him to name the ministers he was working with. Captain Kelly refused to make a statement until he had had a chance to check with the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. This was agreed, and Captain Kelly was brought to Dublin Castle. Jim Gibbons came and met him. This is retired Chief Superintendent John O'Brien. He says that the idea that a government minister would meet with an arrested man like this was pretty unorthodox. And had this grandfatherly chat with him. Asher, James, you'll do the right thing and you'll help the guards. Now, this is a man who is arrested because he's suspected of trying to illegally import arms into the country. You have the Minister of Defence, you know, a seal holder of government saying, Asher, Jim, you'll do the right thing. And I said to him, "Uh, but uh, what about all the sort of uh, consequences of all this? This is Captain Kelly speaking to RTE TV in 1995. We'll discuss this a bit further. We're talking private about this now before we go off on any tangents, you see. And then things got even more strange. Not only did the Gardaí bring the Minister for Defence into the interrogation process... Out of the blue, I was asked where to talk to the Taoiseach. I said I'd talk to anyone. I wouldn't need to talk to him. And it might be no harm to clarify it with him or something like that. So then Captain Kelly is brought up to government buildings to meet the leader of the Irish government, Taoiseach, Jack Lynch. And then Captain Kelly is allowed to go into Jack. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien. And they spent like, what, 40 minutes inside uh, having a private chat. We don't know what Jack Lynch wanted out of this meeting, but Captain Kelly got the impression he was being asked to do a particular job by the Taoiseach. And basically, it was quite clear what he was trying to do was uh, that I would become some type of witness against his own ministers. And he was talking about bringing a minister there and so on. Jack Lynch wanted Captain Kelly to say that the ministers Blaney and Hawhey were involved and to do it in front of them in the Taoiseach's office. And uh, when I talked to the minister, I said I would, but I'd like to talk to him privately and have a chat with him and see what was going on. At that stage, uh, he gave up on me. The private meeting was over and Captain Kelly was sent out to the guard waiting outside and brought back to jail. Now, when I say that appropriate investigation protocol wasn't followed, and when I say there was political interference of the highest kind, this was crazy. Still, in those early days of May, the discussion of the arms importation allegations were kept tightly within Jack Lynch's closest circle. Of course, we know it couldn't stay that way for long because there was an anonymous note out there in the office of the leader of the opposition, Liam Cosgrave. He spoke to some of his closest confidants within the party about what he should do. Kira Meehan, historian, 
They weren't sure initially whether this was something that was genuine or a kind of a trap being set for him. So it is decided that he will find Lynch. Then he goes and he has a meeting with him in his office. There's no official record of the meeting between the Taoiseach and the leader of the opposition, Liam Cosgrave. But one of Cosgrave's colleagues remembers him coming back to the office afterwards. Opening the door and saying, it's all true. And he claims that Jack Lynch has confirmed that everything in the note is accurate. It's not entirely correct, though, because what Jack Lynch had said was that the substance of the note was correct. But he denied all those named were involved, only some of them. Which ones? Well, let's go through the names we've told you about already, and one which we didn't, yet. A plot to bring in arms from Germany has been discovered. So there were these names you've heard plenty of. Captain James Kelly, intelligence officer. Hahi Blaney. The Minister for Defence. And Gibbons. And the other name which we didn't mention was Captain Kelly's boss. Ex-Director of Intelligence, Colonel Hefferon. So consider this for a moment. The leader of the opposition and the Taoiseach have this note between them in the Taoiseach's office. On it are a list of names. And there's some negotiation going on here. The leader of the opposition is pointing to the list of names and the Taoiseach is saying that only some of them are true. Neither the leader of the opposition, Liam Cosgrave, nor the Taoiseach, Jack Lynch, ever spoke publicly about what went on in that office. But Cosgrave only mentioned the names that the Taoiseach agreed to. That meant that the senior army officer Heffron and the army minister Gibbons were protected and the rivals to Jack Lynch's job, Hahi and Blaney, and the junior army officer Kelly were exposed. As we say, that's what the outcome of the meeting was, but we don't know what the two men's reasons were for agreeing what names should be made public. The historian Kira Meehan reckons that Liam Cosgrave agreed to the shorter list because he was worried about the stability of the state during such turbulent times and only wanted to inflict limited damage on the government. She says Jack Lynch must have reasoned that he could spin the story to protect his government. Jack Lynch is very keen to present this narrative that the government had no knowledge of what was going on, that Hawhey and Blaney acted without any authority, especially Gibbons' authority. David Burke, who's written a book on the arms crisis, says Jack Lynch's main concern was the name of Jim Gibbons. As Defence Minister, he was legally permitted to import arms. So if his name was mentioned, that would add legitimacy to the so-called gun plot. But more than that, Burke says that if Jack Lynch allowed the leader of the opposition to accuse Jim Gibbons, he was putting his own job at risk. Gibbons could point to the discussions he'd had with Jack Lynch in January of 1970 and also in December when he was bringing him up to speed. But as we've heard, Jim Gibbons said when he was bringing the Taoiseach up to speed, he never mentioned guns because he knew nothing about them. And as for his name being on the anonymous note, his son Martin is unimpressed. And, and when his name ended up on the note, did he talk to you about that? Or do you, what, no, no, he didn't talk to me about that. And how did you feel when you heard about that? Well, an anonymous note, I wouldn't give it much credence. You know, if people are not prepared to put their name on something, I'm, I'm not even going to address that, you know. Whatever about the value of an anonymous note, this one forced Jack Lynch to act. In fact, Michael Heaney, the historian, says that the note told Jack Lynch nothing he didn't already know. Michael Heaney has written a book called The Arms Crisis, The Plot That Never Was, 
in which he argues that Jack Lynch was fully aware of the arms importation plan from its early days. When Cosgrave went to Lynch on the 5th of May 1970, Lynch had effectively been sitting on his hands over the arms crisis and over an attempted arms importation for three weeks, more or less. He had done nothing, or virtually nothing. But now, Jack Lynch effectively has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Not so, say supporters of Jack Lynch, who say that despite what others said about him being aware of what was going on since the previous autumn, he was not aware. One of those supporters of Jack Lynch has been Des O'Malley, who was in the Cabinet of 1970. Here he is speaking in 1995. There was information which came from different sources, principally the guards, I think, and that was not passed on to Mr Lynch, and uh, he didn't become aware of certain events until sometime in April of 1970. Des O'Malley is too unwell to participate in this series, but his son Owen, who's a political scientist, has spoken to him in more detail about Jack Lynch's behaviour in April and May 1970. It strikes me as odd that this assertion that Lynch was going to get involved or allow a plot like this to happen when politically it was against all his interests, given that we know that Lynch was a dove, was not that, you know, strongly Republican. It just seems incredibly unlikely that he would have wanted to have been involved in such a plot or that he would have even allowed it to happen. You know, Jack Lynch wasn't a man for a nod and a wink. He wouldn't let that sort of thing go. Lynch was mainly in a position where he didn't trust anybody. He was politically isolated. He had a crisis in the North. He had a crisis in his own government. And maybe he was just kind of cautious. And, you know, whether these were tactical mistakes of what appeared to be, you know, him accepting Blaney's assurances or Hoy's assurances. We don't know whether he was hoping it would go away. But, it, I mean, it does seem that that Liam Cosgrave note was a catalyst for action. He panicked. Historian Michael Heaney. He had to do something when the leader of the opposition confronted him. And it's going to blow all over the Doyle and the newspapers. He had to save his party. He had to act in the dead of night. It was a sensational development, two o'clock in the morning. Frank Kilfeather was working on the Irish Times newspaper at that time. That night, the press officer of the government rang the Irish Times late and said, what's the latest? We can give you a statement. We have a very important story we want you to use. So... We said, you know, we can get you in the City Edition or whatever times we were using. And then the announcement was made. Three ministers are out of the government. The announcement came shortly before three o'clock this morning in a statement from the Taoiseach. He said that he had asked for the resignations of Mr. Hawhey, the Minister for Finance, and Mr. Blaney, the Minister for Agriculture, as they did not subscribe fully to government policies on the six counties. It added that the Minister for Local Government, Mr. Boland, had then tendered his resignation in sympathy. The country was absolutely gobsmacked with this. This is reporter Tom Cochran. People wondered what was going on, and there was a great feeling of instability. Uh, they didn't know really. Had there been a coup, a takeover in government? Was Jack Lynch really in control? 
Mike Burns here with a special report on the political events which shook the capital during the night. In a moment, we'll be looking back in 1970, there was no big morning news magazine programme. But on that day, the usual music programme was interrupted by a news special featuring political correspondents. After a pretty sleepless night, Michael Mills, what's your reaction to the Taoiseach statement? Well, the first reaction is one of um, immense surprise that it's happened. I mean, we know that it's been brewing for some time, differences in the Cabinet over the handling of the Northern situation. And uh, the Minister for Agriculture, Mr Blaney, has been in conflict with Taoiseach on a couple of occasions. But uh, Mr Hawhey is a real surprise because Mr Hawhey has never expressed himself openly on the partition issue. I don't think any of us have come to terms with the thing at all yet, really. It's perhaps the biggest political story since perhaps the early days of the state. Mr Lynch must have quite a lot of information not available to the public generally, and he must have sufficient available to him to put his government on the stake. Frank Kilfeather was working as a reporter in the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, when Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach, stood up to make the official announcement that he had fired his ministers. He was very, very nervous. His hand was actually shaking, uh, deadly pale. Then the doll held a debate on the sackings. It, it went on for three days and nights. Total abuse. They snarled across the floor at each other. And Meanwhile, down in the bar and the restaurants, they were fighting down in the bar as well, abusing each other. And it came to fisticuffs outside in the corridor. It got very vicious. The whole thing was very, very vicious. During that debate, Taoiseach Jack Lynch announced to the Dáil that he was stepping back and turning the investigation over to the prosecuting authorities. But there's a problem here. Back in 1970, there was no independent prosecutor. The prosecutor was appointed by the Taoiseach. He was the Attorney General and he was a member of Cabinet. So Jack Lynch was turning over the investigation to a man he had appointed and was asking this man to proceed against two men Jack Lynch had accused. At the end of May 1970, the Attorney-General had decided that the two ministers, Charles Hawhey and Neil Blaney, should be charged with conspiracy to import arms between certain days in March and April of that year. He also had charged Captain James Kelly of Irish Army Intelligence and two men not named on the note, Belfast Republican John Kelly and Belgian-born businessman Albert Likes. The Attorney-General did not bring cases against the Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons and the retired Colonel Heffron of Irish Army Intelligence. However, as you'll hear later, both of those men, Gibbons and Heffron, would be central to the prosecution case. Both would be called to give testimony in court and both those testimonies would have huge impacts on the outcome of the trial. On May 27, 1970, the first arrests were made. Captain Kelly and Belfast Republican John Kelly. It just came as a shock. It came as a boat from the blue. This is John Kelly. I suppose as time wore on, we thought, yeah, there must have been a change of policy or someone had lost their nerve. That uh, somewhere down the line, pressure had come either from the British or from MI5 or whatever on the Irish government and they'd pulled the plug and that was it. The feeling was of betrayal, you know, basically. On the same day, Albert Likes was also arrested. He was the Belgian who was the go-between and interpreter for the meetings with the German arms dealer. Well, Albert, again, was one of the very tragic people, you know, who innocently was involved. 
who felt that he was acting totally within government policy. The next day, May the 28th, the two ministers were arrested, Charles Haughey and Neil Blaney. This is Charles Haughey's son, Sean. Well, I was eight at the time of the arms crisis generally. I think my mother sheltered us from these events. My brother Connor recollects the guard surrounding the house and also being in the hall when my father was arrested. And this is Neil Blaney's son, Eamon. On that morning, I remember uh, they came to take him to the Bridewell and uh, two big special branch men were standing inside the door of the house in the, in the hall in Rohini. And uh, they were coming to lift him and he wasn't really phased. He didn't seem to be bothered. And, um, you know, he said, well, do you have to come? He said, you know, I'm going fucking nowhere. I'm going up to fucking shave. And off he went up the stairs and he went and had a shave and he met them sit and your man sat at the bottom of the stairs and I was trying to go, like, what are you doing here? You know, and he was getting nothing out of him at all. But I remember that and I remember, like, there was something wrong. There was something badly wrong here. These were these were bad people for some reason had come to, to take away the dad. The men faced a charge of conspiracy to import arms. If convicted, they could have been sent to jail for five years. This was the scene outside the Dublin District Court today as the two former ministers were charged. Mr Hockey was charged first. Uh, his right arm was still in a sling and he wore a blue suit, blue tie, white shirt. Uh, Mr Blaney was dressed in a green suit, red tie, white shirt. Neither said anything as Mr. Edward Vernon, the assistant. And then there was Colonel Heffern, Captain Kelly's former boss. As we mentioned, he was interviewed by Gardy as a potential witness for the prosecution, and he made a statement. It was a long statement. It gave many details, including all the times that Heffern had reported to the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. Colonel Heffern wasn't to know it then, but by the time that statement reached the Book of Evidence, it would look very different. That was at the end of May. At the beginning of July, the cases came up for hearing at the district court. Again, a big crowd in court and special branch officers told the court that when the four were arrested, they replied, not guilty. Tom McCorkran, who was an RTE reporter at the time, was there. Captain Kelly adding that anything he had done while a serving officer was done with the knowledge and approval of the then Minister for Defence, Mr James Gibbons. The District Justice would read all the evidence and any statements that the accused had made to decide whether there was a case to answer. And now, he ruled that Neil Blaney had no case to answer and he walked free. He sent the others forward for trial in the Central Criminal Court. Neil Blaney's barrister successfully argued that he had no case to answer. In fact, he described the book of evidence as the book of no evidence. The Attorney General could have overruled the District Court's decision to free Blaney, but he decided against it. Perhaps just as well for the government because, according to that barrister, if Blaney had gone on trial, he was determined to tell all. That barrister was Liam Hamilton, and years later, when he had become a high-profile judge, the reporter Frank Kilfeather was speaking to him. And uh, I said, God, I said, you were very good in that case, the Blaney case. And he burst out laughing and he said, well, actually, he said, it's just as well he got off because if he hadn't got off, he said he was going to lift the lid on it and he was going to really go to town on the whole shebang, what had happened. And as it happened, he did get off. So he never went to the full trial. The case went to trial at the end of September 1970. 
Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. On the first day of the trial, in a church across from the courts, Colonel Heffron was praying. He went to Adam and Eve's church, which was open at the time, and he just went in and sat down and reflected for about an hour, maybe more. This is Colonel Heffron's son, Colm. My father was called as a witness for the prosecution to support the government's case against Captain Kelly and the other accused. But he felt something was not right when he got a phone call from Mr Gibbons and he said that the minister had asked him, was Captain Kelly not reporting regularly? There was a sharp intake of breath and Dad didn't know where this was coming from because as far as he was concerned, Kelly was doing what the government wanted them to do. And he said, no, minister, Captain Kelly is reported to me. Any time I want to report, he will have it. So Dad suspected that they were going to try and uh, pin it on Captain Kelly. And the witness statements came. Colonel Heffron's witness statement was a shock. This is the statement that's presented in court and which is drawn from the statement he had given to investigating Gardaí. But Colonel Heffron discovered that the statement he gave the Gardaí had been changed. Things he said about Minister Gibbons knowing what was going on had been taken out and it had been altered to make it look as if Captain Kelly was operating on his own without authority. He wasn't taken into a room and a light shone in his face and told you must do this. It was much, much more subtle. This is David Burke, author and barrister. He says editing Colonel Heffron's statement was a way of telling him how he was expected to perform in court. When he opened up the statement, he realised at that stage that some of the evidence had been excised from it. And this was the script for him. This was the hint. Tom Heffron, another of Colonel Heffron's sons, remembers that period. I recollect there was more than one call from Minister Gibbons, as he was at the time. And in one of these calls, I was in the room and I overheard... We know you'll do the right thing, Colonel Heffern. Those were the words. And I didn't ask him what was meant by that, but it was certainly left with them that there was some expectation as to how he was going to behave. So what was the right thing? That's what Colonel Heffern was praying about on that first day of the trial in Adam and Eve's church across from the four courts. If he went along with the statement as presented to the court... As a lifelong servant of the state, he would be doing the government's bidding. And that government was now pursuing a policy of non-violent solutions to the problems in the North, something Colonel Heffron supported. However, if he did that, as far as he was concerned, he would be putting his hand on the Bible. And despite swearing, he would not be telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He was in a space where all of the things about the values of truth, you know, I mean, that's what church is all about, going to church, you know, tell the truth. The trial was about to begin. Colonel Heffron left the church and crossed over to the courts. He had made his mind up. He had decided how he was going to testify and he went to find the one man he needed to tell.
Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistant from Liam O'Brien and the Documentary in One team. Additional assistance from Sean McGillaforig, Roisin O'Dee and RTE Radio and TV Archives. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary and one production. Yeah.